Welcome to Firing Pin Leadership, your podcast about leadership development with an emphasis on growth and influence. While each episode centers on public service, discussions cover what works and what doesn't to guide and support your leadership acumen. I'm your host, BJ King. Hello, everyone. Thank you for sticking with me through this adventure of a podcast. I know it's been a while, but my little promotion has been rather distracting. This episode, I am welcoming Chris Walters. Chris started his career with the Air National Guard in 1997, and he was enlisted for the purpose of getting his degree, and then he eventually became commissioned to be a navigator for a C-130 airplane. As he progressed his career, he was able to be deployed a handful of times. Uh, starting in 2003, please be aware that this episode has some soft rain in the background because this was an episode that was recorded outside in the backyard right in the late evening time. So there were some sounds that couldn't get out, but once you understand that it was a relaxing evening, you'll hopefully appreciate that. Again, Chris Walters. My job was to make sure that we got beans and bullets to the guys on the ground to the spot that they knew it was going to be going to at the time they knew it was going to be there. That was my job. My other job on the airplane was to be eyes out the window, and I had a little button in my hand we called the pickle, and anytime we were shot at, uh, missile, RPG, anything like that, I wore that pickle out because... I'm pumping out chaff and flares, depending on what what kind of uh, cocktail we have going. But so I ran the defensive systems. I did all the navigation in and out of the countries that we were going to, the drop zones, the landing zones. I hauled stuff in and airdropped it to a place that then turned into an airstrip the next week and landed on it. And it was pretty cool. Never did I think that I would be in a C-130 landing on a three-foot-thick gravel strip and watching every antenna on the bottom of the airplane get ripped off. Mm -hmm. And then being so bogged down in the gravel that we had to offload everything by hand because you couldn't get any equipment up there. Mm -hmm. So we go in the back, and just because it's not my gig in the back, that's not how it works. You're a crew airplane. You guys help each other out. Mm-hmm. You jump in the back. You unload stuff with all the rest of the guys that are back there. And you get back up front and set the waypoints and run the navigational systems and get the hell out of there and head back to your own hooch where your stuff is is gathered around your bed and your cot. And that's the best place in the, play, in the AOR to be. How many times would you say that you've done that? sort of responsibility uh well i did about seven deployments um and i would say that as a navigator in the aor i had more combat time at one point than i had regular time in the airplane so being a brand new navigator coming back from training in august of 02 then deploying for the first time for six months in March of 03 when the war kicked off almost all of my time from then on for the next two years was combat time almost every bit of it so to have more combat time than your normal training time was pretty spectacular Mm -hmm. uh, extraordinary not typical Um, once that ended in 05 the first two years of activation 
then I went back to doing a lot of training sorties and uh, trips locally in the U.S., things like that. So uh, my regular time built back up. I deployed again in 09 and again in 11, I think. And so I ended my career early in 2012. I retired in December of 2012, just shy of 16 years of service. Had to take a medical retirement. Couldn't fly anymore. And in that just shy of 16 years, over eight years of it was active duty. And I was never active duty. I never enlisted in active duty. I was always a guardsman. But I had almost eight years of active duty time in my 16 years of service. What was the most difficult part of that responsibility? Leaving my family, Mm -hmm. absolutely, wholeheartedly. Uh, And then leaving your family that you're with when you're deployed. You know, when we would swap out, they would bring airplanes over to swap out and crews would come with them and then your crew would go home. Mm -hmm. You didn't want to leave your buddies that were sticking around, you know. They're your family when you're there. Mm -hmm. Um, But you sure want to go home and see your kids and and everybody at home. So it was a kind of double-edged sword. So if home is where the heart is and you were split between two places, how did you cope with that? Uh, Honestly, Mm -hmm. drinking, uh, bury myself in training and children activities. Mm -hmm. In 05, uh, came home to divorce papers. Mm -hmm. And so it was um, a much different situation for me then since I wasn't coming home to anyone except for my immediate family and my children. Yeah. So I I hit the bottle some, you know, probably had a little midlife crisis and push forward. You just kind of swallow everything and push it down and move on. Next task, please. Well, it's not, that's not a very uncommon response as well. I mean, be able to transfer those sort of emotions and dealings to make those decisions like that. So that's not uncommon at all. How did you climb out? Well, so my son, my oldest son was six years old at the time uh, when we got divorced. And I asked him if there was one thing he could have, what would it be? And he said, for you to have another job where you're not gone so much. Well, that hit really hard. Six-year-old boy with that kind of foresight, pretty intense for me. Um, and I missed so much of their childhood. Um, both of my sons missed, missed so much of their growing up. So I became a firefighter. I still was in the military as a guardsman, but now my full-time civilian job was being a firefighter and EMT. Mm-hmm. Went through all the training myself, did it all on my own, got hired, started working for the fire department here in St. Joe, and uh, just thought, well, my two days off, I'll go out to the guard base and do my local training sorties and and log my pay periods that way, and I get to go home at five o'clock in the afternoon and go to my kids' ball games or mm-hmm. practice or hang out and make dinner for my kids and whatever, you know. And at that point, it was no big deal. It was just me and the boys, and we were batching it in my place, you know, and it was fun and. I, I had my boys involved in whatever they wanted to be involved in. Uh, wrestling was a big 
big part of our family, and it was a big part of my life growing up and college. And my boys both went through wrestling their in their lives, and and it was a, the tying bond for us as we we're kind of growing up together. Mm-hmm. Is the best way probably to put it. So being on the department, I thought it's an, it's not unlike the military, <laughs> where it's a brotherhood. Mm-hmm. You you work side by side with guys that you put your life in their hands. They put their life in yours. You got to trust each other, whether you like each other or not. You got to trust one another that the other person's going to do their job, and they're trusting that you're going to do yours. So it, it was an easy transition for me. However, St. Joe being the biggest small town in the country, basically, everyone knows everyone, Mm -hmm. it was inevitable that I would have calls with people that I knew. And for people that have never been in the public service line of work, law enforcement, EMS, fire, um, public health, the things that you don't know, you don't know. Mm are the things that make it able for you to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. And I got to a point where I couldn't sleep at night anymore. And I took a serious turn for the worse mentally Mm -hmm. with some of the things that I experienced on the department. And it basically exacerbated problems I had kept inside and not shared from the military, from my deployments, from missing kids and things like that. It just... Compounded. Yep. Mm -hmm. Big time. So I just, uh, when that that came about, I had met who is now my lovely wife, and she saw an instant change in me and said, if we want this to work, you need to get some help. Mm -hmm. The city and the department had no such thing. They didn't offer counseling. Uh, They didn't offer help for those of us that had these problems. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up going back to the VA Mm -hmm. because I was already retired from the military. So I was going through the VA for my health care. And I ended up having to go through another uh, what they call comp and pin Mm -hmm. and uh, exam. And they upped my percentages exponentially and then told me that I could no longer be a firefighter either. Okay. So I had to quit that job. And I actually didn't quit. Uh, It's, we don't need to get into all that, but uh, I actually was fired from the position and then had to fight really hard for a good six months to get a retirement out of the department I'd been on long enough to retire and everything and mm-hmm. but they weren't they tried really hard not to give it to me to articulate not sending out that benefit correct so it was it was a tough uh, a tough year we were moving and buying a house then I lost my job now we can't buy the house with, because I don't have income and mm-hmm. it was tough and I became a very bitter disgruntled jerk to anybody in a position of authority Mm -hmm. with the city, with the military, with anywhere that I was at. Mm -hmm. And I I wasn't a very nice person, BJ. I just wasn't very nice at all. So then what, then for this route of your journey for self-discovery and understanding, what was that turning point? I would say 
So when I went for my first exam with the VA, actually when I went to what they have a, a VCO, of a, a liaison that helps you mm-hmm. file your claims mm-hmm. and things with the VA, my liaison asks me a thousand questions about anything and everything you can think of could have happened to you while you were in the military, service connected. Even to the point where, what's the longest you've sat in the seat on the airplane? Uh, 12 hours. Okay, so 12 hours in a seat for that kind of time. We're going to file a claim for hemorrhoids. I'm like, uh, well, okay, Mm -hmm. whatever. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, it was very, very thorough. Mm -hmm. And he gets to the point and he says, how about PTSD? How do you feel about PTSD? And I said, I don't have PTSD. I'm fine. I don't have that. And he goes, uh, you sure about that? And I said, yeah, I don't have that. That that stuff is reserved for wounded guys that lose limbs, watch their buddies die in front of them. The shell-shocked that yeah. were in the trenches kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Those guys hand-to-hand kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a few moments of, you know, hand-to-hand possibility that... You wouldn't expect an Air Force C-130 navigator to have. It happened, but whatever. Mm-hmm. The I, I didn't see myself as as one of those guys. I felt like I had it pretty good being in the airplane, that kind of stuff. Not seeing the things that other people were really seeing. Mm-hmm. So the VCO says... Well, why don't you fill this out real quick? And he opens up this booklet and hands it over to me. And he says, just answer these these 10 questions. So, okay. So I go through them. Questions are like, do you get angry with your family? Do you yell at your family a lot? Do you know why you're angry? Blah, 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 blah. Just similar questions all the way down. And I hand it back to him. And I say, here you go. And he looks at it. And I answered yes to like nine out of the 10 questions. And it flips it over, back over, and the cover says, top 10 signs you have PTSD. And he says, brother, I'm going to put you in for PTSD. Was that an eye-opener for you? Yeah, I went to the parking lot and cried for about three hours. Okay. Called my sister and said, I don't think that I can drive home. And my sister just talked me down, Mm -hmm. brought me back to a baseline, Mm -hmm. to a reality. I drove home. And just everything flooded me at one time. Every memory that I had pushed back, every negative existence I had in my life at that time just took over. Everything. I started really drinking heavy. I got in financial trouble. I could not hold down a relationship. I was take my kids to my mom's house and have them spend time there because I was afraid what they might see of me mm-hmm. at my house. I was in a really, really dark place. Really bad. So did the acknowledgement from an outside trusted source for the PTSD, was that a hindrance or a benefit? It was both because it was a benefit as far as getting help, realizing that I needed the help. Now knowing why I'm acting the way I'm acting. But I was still in the fire department at that time. And so firefighters, you know, cops, we don't talk about that kind of stuff. You don't bring that kind of stuff up. 
You don't tell anybody you need to go see someone. Don't really want to show that weakness. No. And you're and and things are changing a little bit now, but society, you know, men don't do that. You know, you're not supposed to be weak. You're supposed to be strong, and especially if you're in public service, you're supposed to be mm-hmm. strong. You big kind of superhero type, you know, that kind of thing. And I knew growing up, all my life growing up, I wanted to be a superhero. Man, I wanted to save everyone. I wanted to be that guy that was everyone went to for help. Then when I got to be that guy, it was overwhelming. There is no one person that can handle that kind of responsibility. Except, there, I will take that back. There is one. And that's Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he's the only one. Mm-hmm. You know? And he... He took that for me. That helped me through everything. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things, probably the biggest thing that helped me through, uh, and my and my children. And then meeting my now wife, who is a no nonsense, no silliness kind of kind of person, cut straight to the chase and said, "Something's wrong with you. You need help. I don't like this you." And I see my kids crying because I'm yelling for a reason that I don't even know why I'm yelling because I can't hear the TV but I'm like yelling like seriously like screaming at them and they think that I'm the most horrific person on in, on the planet at that time mm-hmm. and then when you see yourself in their face it's a punch in the gut and so having that over my head on the fire department I told my guys that I worked with on my truck that hey I'm I'm having problems I've been diagnosed <laughs> you should know this because I work with you every day mm-hmm. that we are together we're a tight knit group we're one one unit and you need to know that if you see something different in me that you may need to back out of where we're at, wherever we're at you know it may I may be in another place uh, and I, I felt that that was necessary to tell them it was a uh, I owed it to them for them to know that I was not the same guy that they were working with just a few months prior to that. Was that well-received, or was that Fire Department Survivor Edition? I It was well-received between the three of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, my crew was very understanding. I love those guys, still love those guys. I still have contact with those guys. They, they took care of me, mm-hmm. you know. I, I I felt safe there with them. Now, if one of them was gone and we had someone different on the truck that day, it was a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. But normally, one of them was there to be kind of my service firefighter, yep. you know, yep. <laughs> my buddy to help out. And so I wasn't, it wasn't too bad. But when it got to the point where we went on a couple of calls that involved small children, Mm -hmm. then uh, that was it Mm -hmm. for me. Uh, Every, I, I, I couldn't sleep. I was afraid to sleep knowing what I would see in my nightmares. Mm -hmm. Just, it, it was bad. And I compounded everything with drinking, with not being able to sleep, with not trusting anyone, everything just spiraled out of control until my VA doc said, you can't do this job anymore. You're not in a position mentally, and it's physically changing you to be able to do this job. You just can't do it. So I went home that day with that letter from my doctor. Actually, I didn't go home. I went to the city hall mm-hmm. to give it to 
HR, haven't put it in my file, and that was not received very well at all. Made it even worse. Then I took it to the chief. Chief puts me on light duty, tells me to file for my retirement. I'm initially denied my retirement, but before it became knowledge to me, I didn't even know that I was denied my retirement yet. I found out on a Monday, but the Friday before that, apparently, the chief found out, but didn't say anything. So Monday, when I went into work, he walks in, and I'm sitting there, and he says, what are you doing here? I fired you on Friday. That's how that works? That's how that worked. So then I lost all trust in anybody in a position of authority that was supposed to be there to help me. It was it was very difficult. Um, lost my job that day. Lost the ability to buy this house that we're in now. My wife ended up having to do it. You know, it was just a, a whirlwind of crap. And I didn't know where to go. So I basically vested all of my needs to the VA. And they really hit a home run with me. I know that there's plenty of stories about how bad the VA is and how veterans were dying waiting for appointments and things like that. And that was true. Yes. Those things were happening. But my experience is not that. Same with mine and my dad's. My experience has been good. Mm -hmm. And I've been very blessed to be able to have that help. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to realize that I earned that and that I deserved it because I didn't feel like I was one of those guys. I was just a guy that did my service, did my time. Mm-hmm. I ended up not being able to finish out 20 years, but there's lots of guys that that happens to. Mm-hmm. And I just felt, okay, well, next chapter, turn the page, let's move on. And didn't really think that there was a connection to the fact that I signed that dotted line, mm-hmm. wrote that blank check, to then being taken care of by the VA after the fact. Mm-hmm. I had no vision of that until it had to be. So that was uh, quite a relief, but, um, you know, people find out that I'm 100% disabled and it's common knowledge what the money is that you receive from the VA. Anybody can log on and look at that, how much that is. And they're like, man, you really, you really make it out. And I'm like, well, I gladly trade the things that I'm being paid for to not have those problems. I'd gladly trade those in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. I'd give back every cent. So like I, we've talked before, people that don't know what they don't know, it's that's their safe reality Mm -hmm. you know and I always thought beforehand VA disabled veterans were guys in wheelchairs Mm -hmm. guys in hospital ridden you know things like that yep and they they come in all shapes and sizes Mm -hmm. so well ignorance can be bliss that's a fact for those that are comfortable not wanting to expand you know, I always joke about this and say, people always go, hey, Chris, what do you know? And I say, I try not to know. That way I can't be held responsible for anything. Mm-hmm. And it's funny how much truth there really is behind that. The less you know, the better you are for, for very many instances these days. So social media, 
the internet, media uh, themselves, aside from this podcast, apparently, obviously, you know, garbage. It's garbage. It is going to be the downfall of the human race. Technology is going to be the downfall of the human race. There is a level of bittersweetness that's going to amplify all the good and all the bad of humankind with, with what the world has come to. Right. And you've been able to make quite the journey for what you've experienced personally and professionally, how your professional life has influenced you. You've brought up that the value of your family and how you were, despite the challenges, you were able to keep your kids uh, in mind by going ahead and shipping them off here and there for a little bit of respite kind of thing. And your crew, you were able to trust in them on the fire department there. What, with the level of honesty that you've been able to provide, what is your perspective of leadership after learning, after experiencing all that, what is your perspective of leadership with everything that you've experienced? Well, I think as far as the military goes, every officer should be enlisted first. You should be able to understand what you're asking enlisted to do by experiencing that side of the coin first. These guys that come in off the street straight into being commissioned officer, pilots, any uh, medical guys like that, I, I think that it's a disservice to them when they end up going into a role, leadership role, to not have that experience of being the lead. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I felt, I always felt that my time as an enlisted airman was what kept me a good officer, kept, me, kept making me a good officer. Was I a great officer? I don't know about that. I had compassion for the guys that worked with me. I just saw no difference really between officer and enlisted, which you're supposed to. Mm. But I really couldn't experience that because I couldn't tell enlisted guys that were getting on the airplane with me doing the same missions that I was doing that my rank was better than their rank. That made no sense to me. Right. Same team. The the quarterback isn't more important than the lineman. It's all the same right. team. You're so. one you're one unit. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to all be on the same team. And and there's stuff in in place to teach crew resource management so that, you know, CRM that on the airplane that you work together, rank doesn't matter on the airplane, but when you get back on the ground, that rank comes back into play. Well you have to remember that you don't forget what happened on the airplane when you come back to the ground and that will play into account sometimes how officers and enlisted guys react and or interact I should say I always felt that that was bull that that you can't play that card when we're up there playing the CRM role being crew members together you can't then come down on the ground and say don't forget that I'm your superior officer and Today you were providing me critical information, but don't forget, here in a few hours you'll be saluting me. Exactly. I never could play that game. Unless someone wanted to push it and be disrespectful, then I had a problem with it. As far as like an enlisted guy talking to an officer in front of other young enlisted guys that are just new, Mm -hmm. I I would make an issue with that. Mm -hmm. But 
if it's just the two of us, I'm an officer, you're enlisted, and we're just talking, then I never had a... I never could understand where anyone, just because you wore a different rank on your uniform, felt you were better than the other person. I never liked that. So I remember going through squadron officer school, which is for the Air Force, is what captains have to take to then make major. It's Mm -hmm. their PME, professional military education, to make major. And I went through squadron officer school with a bunch of highly intelligent people, men, women, pilots, ground pounders, guys slinging food in the chow hall, all different types from all different places. And I remember going through officer training and one of the guys in my officer training class was a pilot or going to be a pilot he was a loadmaster mm-hmm. and he was enlisted and now going through commissioning daddy was a big time had a couple stars on his shoulder you know they're from california guy was a pretty boy he was on every billboard across the country for the Air National Guard, he was used as their... The poster child. Yeah, he, yeah. literally. Literally. The poster child. <laughs> you know, it's like Iceman from Top Gun going through officer training with me. Mm-hmm. Seriously. And he thought that was him. He was that guy. When he was no better, no higher rank than anyone else there. Those types of guys could be great managers. How so? They know what needs to get done. They know how to get it done, but they don't care who gets hurt doing it. They just see getting the job done. They don't see what it costs. Leaders value what's going to be lost or what's going to be gained in the doings of the mission. If you can't utilize all of your resources to get to the commonplace of mission complete, you're not a leader. You're a manager. The old saying, there's 101 ways to skin a cat. Doesn't mean they're all right. Doesn't mean one way is better than another way, depending on where you're at or what you're doing. Sometimes you do what you have to do. I get that. I've been there, done that. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a position where you can include people that feel like they're not that important of a role when you're a higher ranking officer and you can ask a two striper or three striper hey what do you think about this and they get to invest in the mission they get to be a part of it they're going to want to do anything and everything for you because you included them and i'm not saying that you do that like you're using them to get what you want done Mm -hmm but you're letting them do the work and complete the mission their way, not your way. Safest way for buy-in, not for your agenda, but for the, the organizational mission. Correct. Mm-hmm. And you know, of course, there's, there's the whole uh, unlawful orders thing where you, know, you can be told to do something and you, you don't do it because it's not a lawful order. You, you know something's gonna be wrong with it. Uh, you see that all the time and and you know, movies and things like that you know they really throw it out there but there's there's a lot more of that than people think but it's not worded in a way where the young enlisted person is going to think it's unlawful 
they're thinking, well, this guy told me I can do it. So it must be okay to do it because he's the commander. Right. Their level of trust has already been established based on rank alone. Right. Yep. They don't know the person. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you're a manager. They think you're a leader, but you're not. You're you're lying to these kids. You're not, Well, I shouldn't say you're lying to them. You're, what's Ag- the word? Aggressively misleading. Misleading. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Misleading. You're, you're sugarcoating the hell out of it where... That sour patch on the middle, they don't taste it because it's all sugar on the outside, you know? So what does it take for the youngster, in this idea, the youngster to go ahead and wisen up and still have that level of trust that's not so benign? Well, if they're not afraid to ask the question, then they're going to do well. But if your door is that of one that nobody wants to knock on because they're afraid of what's going to come from the other side, then you're the problem. You have to be able to be open enough for the people that you're leading to be able to come in and give their input and say what they feel is an important part of the mission. Otherwise, they're never going to want to do anything for you or with you at all. Has anyone ever come to you with a problem or a question with your door open uh, within the role that you worked in either profession and you found it hard to buy into their challenge? I will say that I've, I'm al- I have always been the kind of guy that I'm going to listen to what you have to say. I might not like it. I might not agree with it. You're going to know because I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to listen to what you have to say. Just because I don't agree with it doesn't mean that your voice doesn't matter. So you got to listen at least. Now, has there been times that I already have a an answer before the question is asked? Yes, because it might be a question that's not really the smartest one to ask at that moment. But you let them ask it, and then you, just like with my kids. Now, what do you think the answer to that question is? You know, that kind of thing. So I would let them come in, and if it was something that I didn't necessarily agree with, I would say, well, what do you think about X, X, and X instead of this? I kind of like where you're heading. You know, you're, you're wanting to do this a different way, but can you do it this way and this way together? Or is that that the only way you see it being done? Make them work to understand what they're trying to tell you. Understand the full size of the forest while in the midst of all the trees? Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about that one tree. Mm -hmm. It's going to hit a couple other trees, Mm -hmm. but you need to know what those trees are that it's going to hit, you know? So uh, I'll I'll give you an example. I worked at the um, tactical training center over here at the Missouri Air Guard Base here in St. Joe. It's in a school where crews from around the world come in with their airplane and they do this low-level tactical school, mm-hmm. uh, learning how to terrain mask uh, an airplane against the side of a mountain, mm-hmm. to fight off an F-16 mm-hmm. if they're you know in an air-to-air combat kind of thing. It's not really air-to-air combat for the C-130. Yeah. You, you know, you're kind of the gazelle getting chased by the cheetah, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this schoolhouse was very intense, very high-profile school. The head nav, which I was a navigator, the head navigator at the schoolhouse 
who was also the chief instructor of this certain class that was going through at that moment, mm -hmm. tasked me with getting all of the laptops ready for the cruise and making sure that they had their equipment ready to take on the airplane. No problem. Mm -hmm. I did this every day for myself, so it shouldn't be too hard for anyone else. Right. We're missing one of the inverters mm -hmm. that you plug into the airplane mm -hmm. that then gives you the kind of power, mm -hmm. a 110 power to plug mm -hmm. your laptop into. Missing one. Can't find it. Instead of going to this lieutenant colonel and telling him I can't find this piece of equipment, I start asking around, you know, I try to fix it myself mm -hmm. at the lowest level possible. I go back over to across the street, which is the squadron that I belonged to at that time, mm -hmm. uh, or right before that, before I moved over to work at the school, I belonged to the squadron, and we have those same inverters over at our squadron. Makes sense. So I go over there, but they're all going through some sort of servicing. One of the guys I flew with had one of his own, a personal one. It's the same exact model, mm -hmm. same exact model that we use that is issued to us by the military. Simple enough. No difference. Mm -hmm. I borrow it. Take full responsibility myself. If something happens to this, I'll replace it myself. Not the squadron will replace it. Not the school will replace it. Chris Walters will replace it. So I take it, go over, put it in there. The crew gets it out. And it doesn't have a number on it like the rest of everything else has a number on it. Mm -hmm. it it's not the number assigned to the briefcase that it goes in. Yeah, it's not serialized, basically. Right. So, yeah. So, it's not part of this group. Mm -hmm. They bring it to the instructor. The instructor, the chief instructor, Chief Nav, comes to me in front of the front, front desk and just destroys me in front of everyone. How stupid can you be? How do you think that it's okay to use this equipment that's not been certified and, you know, airworthy and this and that. I'm like, first of all, I, I, this is a lieutenant colonel. I was a captain. Mm -hmm. At that very moment, like, I forgot rank mm -hmm. because he made it personal. He's calling me names. And there was an audience, too? Oh, there's tons of people around. Okay. Even the commanders. Okay. The two full words that were commanders of the school were standing in their offices listening to all this go down. And... I didn't take it. I've never been the kind of guy that does take that kind of stuff. You remember the line in Band of Brothers? You don't have to respect the man, but you do have to respect the rank. Mm -hmm. So this was a typical, that it was that instance right then. Mm -hmm. And I didn't respect the man at all at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I also forgot his rank. So I was pretty insubordinate, uh, although it was probably justified by anyone else that would have been in any other kind of line of work mm -hmm. other than a line of work with rank. Everyone else probably would have been like, yeah, I would have said the same thing. Both of us got called into the commander's office by the commander who was watching the whole thing go down. We go in there, explain to him what, what happened. He looks at the lieutenant colonel and he says, why are you upset that he's getting the equipment together to make sure that the mission is completed? It's the same piece of equipment, even if it doesn't have a sticker on it. He could have put a sticker on it and you would have never known the difference. Well, he didn't come to me. 
Oh, so you want him to come to you? Yeah, because I'm in charge of this class. But wait a minute. You're in charge of the class. You're not in charge of the equipment. Well, everything's my responsibility, he says. Well, you delegated this position to him, and it's his responsibility, and he took care of it. So I'm going to ask you to not be the leader of this class for the rest of the time they're here because you're not being a leader. And it was very humbling for both of us Mm -hmm. because I was like, I'm going to get in serious trouble here for what I said, and rightfully so. And for him, it was a, you don't have to be a micromanager. You delegated this to a completely competent person that can do this job, then berated him for doing the job. Mm-hmm. Not the way that you would have done it. If you would have wanted it done that way, you should have gone and done it yourself. You don't see that very often in the military, where a full bird colonel takes the side of a captain over a lieutenant colonel. I learned a lot that day from that bird that about leadership and about how he didn't destroy both of us. He set us down, made us both see where we went wrong, where we could have made it different, and then told us to get the hell out. I got other things to do. I'm done playing dad, now get out. So how was it that the lieutenant colonel didn't have the foresight of the full-blown colonel? Was it just a, was it personal for him then? It was a personality thing. Oh, just a personality, okay. In this instance, it was a personality thing. The guy, the lieutenant colonel, great guy, extremely intelligent, very, very, very good navigator. Mm-hmm. One, one of the best. People skills quite lacking in that, that division. Mm-hmm. And even in the military, as a leader, you've got to have some people skills. It's not always just cut and dry. It's not always just black and white. So this gentleman was never going to make colonel because of that lacking. That, that was a, an indicator? Yes. For competency for that level of being able to step up or not step up? Correct. His, his managerial skills were very good. He could delegate. He could get people to go do things. But when it didn't come back the way he wanted it to come back, his leadership skills in having that conversation were very poor. So no empathy, no people skills. All of these things are traits that a leader must have, even in the hardest of hard positions, even when you're in a position where you make decisions or people die. You had to have gotten into that position because the leaders above you must have seen something in you to get you into that position. And you either forgot where you came from and threw those traits out the window, or you adapt and overcome and become the leader that they expected you to be. So in my mind, Uh, Neither one of us were very good leaders that day. The colonel was a great leader that day. You know, good old boy, straight out of the the hills of Missouri, showed us a, a little, you know, humble pie by patting us on the back a little bit and a little bit of sarcasm and patronization now run along. 
kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to squash you today because this is a learning experience and let it be that learning experience. That was the trait of a good leader that day. The, on the other hand, the Lieutenant Colonel and I were bitter at each other for quite some time mm-hmm. because he felt I showed him up in front of the Colonel and I felt he was a complete mm-hmm. jerk in front of everyone that was there to see. So did he ever take ownership of his demeanor? Not really. Okay. It was kind of just went by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of the, anytime he and I were working on something together, it was the elephant in the room. Yeah. But we made it work. Mm-hmm. We got stuff done. You know, you, you still were able to do it. Eventually, he uh, retired and uh, on the civilian side became a phenomenal leader with helping veterans get the help they need through the VA. That is incredible. It, and he's a great guy, I'm I mean, telling you. Yeah, for a different change of scenery or structure, organizational mission, now he is transformed to be much more influential. Exactly. That His is stress cool. level was much lower. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no stress there now. He's helping guys. He gets to be the hero, and he's good at it. And guys respect him mm-hmm. for it. And he, he, I think he learned that that day as well. Okay. I think he probably put that in his pocket and said, you know, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And just because it's not the way I would do it doesn't mean it's wrong. So that's a good story. Strategically in leadership, the long-term mission for Chris Walters, where do you see yourself going now? With everything that you've learned, everything you've developed, how all the ups and downs, strategically, what's next and going forward for the rest for Chris Walters? Well, as you know, there really is no filter for me. Yes. Um, and I have kind of had to learn to wrangle that in a little bit with my newest role, mm-hmm. being a school board member, being a, you know, kind of a face in the community, mm-hmm. face of the school. Um, not the face, but a face. Mm-hmm. You know, they, people see me, I'm usually wearing my school colors and logos and things like that. And I, I still want to be that superhero. I still want to help everyone. Yeah. I tell my wife this all the time, and it grounds me all the time, brings me back to earth, puts my feet firmly on the ground, reminds me. I spent my whole childhood and my professional career trying to be the type of person that people look to for help, trying to be the superhero. When in turn, in one instance, my wife became the superhero to me that I could never have been to anyone else. And I remember that when I start to get that thought in my head when I'm like, okay, I, I can help this person and this person and this person and this person, and I say no to no one. Mm-hmm. Everyone is, yep, I'll be there, I'll be there to help. And then I remember, I'm just one person. I can help one other person right now, but I can't help everybody at the same time. I can voice my opinion. People can take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be the gospel. And I'm more effective helping a smaller group than I am spreading myself so thin that I can't really give the kind of help that everyone needs. Mm-hmm. So in the position I'm in now with the school board, it's all about families. 
A lot of people always say it's all about the kids. It's all about the kids. Well, it's not just about the kids. The school is in place for the kids, but there's other people in that building and in that district. And there's families that nobody knows what goes on at their house. Nobody knows what goes on in the car on the way home. People show up with different attitudes, personalities every day. You have to remember that you don't know what that person is going through. So my idea of leadership now strategically is to listen so much more. Being 45 years old, I have finally really learned how to listen where I thought, man, I've known how to do this all the time. I've always been the guy that people call to talk to, to vent to, mm-hmm. and I listen. But I don't think that I really listened. I let them vent and get it out mm-hmm. and say something, you know, bounce it off someone. But was I really listening to what these people were telling me? That's why I hate trying to have a serious conversation or even an argument for that matter through text messages there's no body language there's no facial gestures no inflection with tone tone no looking away no eye movement you know all the behavioral things that you can sit and watch someone and see how they act There's none of that. That's one of the reasons why I said earlier, technology is going to be the downfall of human race because I could text my wife and say, what's for dinner? And it could be whatever you make for yourself, or it could be, oh, we're having this, you know, she could have just had a horrible crappy day at work. And I said, what's for dinner? And it's pushed her right over the edge. You know, I, and I meant nothing by it. Just, Hey, you know, what, what do we have? just like the text message, I'm fine. Exactly. Really? Are you really fine? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so listening is my strategic leadership skill now Mm -hmm. that I listen to my kids more. I listen to my wife more. Listen to my friends more. I don't just hear what I want to hear, which I think that's the kind of person I used to be, uh, and which I think is why people around here voted me in to the school board, is because I do listen, and I really take to heart what they say, and I try to direct them to where they need to go, or do it myself if if that's the case instead of just going well I'll, I'll look into it you know that sort of thing so you're you're elected by the community to represent the community so that's what you're supposed to do and I feel like I'm supposed to be a voice for all of them that say hey man I put you there and I don't like what's going on mm-hmm. this is how I feel and then that's my job to listen to what their grievances are and take them forward or direct them where they're supposed to really take them because I might not be able to do anything about it. Right. So with age comes wisdom, mm-hmm. you know, and you know that what's the song says, uh, wisdom in your youth would be a lot less fun, <laughs> uh, is spot on. 
you know, you wouldn't do all the stupid stuff you did when you were younger if you knew what could have really happened. Then when you become a parent and you had children and you'd see them doing the stupid stuff that you did and you freak out because you know what could happen. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I don't understand. You did it. Well, you know, but. And I still wasn't supposed to. Right. And I and I shouldn't have then. Nope. I should have never told you I did that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but, you know, I'm still learning. I'm still learning today. I've listened to the other guys that you've had on here, uh, friends of mine, guys that I've really entrusted and the things that they say and different perspectives that they bring. And I realized, man, that's a, that's a really cool statement. I never thought of it that way. And I've been doing this for who knows how long, mm -hmm. but that's a really cool perspective. Mm -hmm. So if you ever get to a point that you can't do that, then you're not in a position to be a leader. If you can't learn anymore, there's nothing left to learn, well, you're done. Probably one of the biggest things that I have noticed about myself is that I tend to play devil's advocate so much because I have seen both sides of things on so many occasions, so many different times. One of the calls that I had that really set me back on the fire department I watched a mother, a young mother in her early 20s that was a new mother. She's a kid. You're a kid still in your early 20s, you know. I sound like an old man when I say that, but it's true. Begging, begging us to save her child. And my, there's nothing I can do. Begging, begging would easily lay her life down for that child. Nothing I can do. I can go through the motions. I can tell her whatever it is she wants to hear. It's not going to change the fact that her child is gone. To totally have never lost. I've never lost a child. Never been in a position where I've grieved like that. I don't think that God ever really planned for parents to bury their kids, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So I can't begin to say that I understand how that woman felt. It was a very horrible tragedy, accident. The child died because they were trying to take care of the child, mm -hmm. and a chain of events happened that was out of their hands that they couldn't change, mm -hmm. and the, the child passed because of it not intentional mm -hmm. total definition of a tragic accident next morning after that happened I'm sitting around the dinner table breakfast table at the fire station talking to the next crew coming in one of the guys on the crew coming in says I hope they throw the book at her I got so mad BJ, mm -hmm. I just about punched the guy right in the face. I stood up. I said, who the hell do you think you are? You have no idea what that woman was going through. You need to shut the up and don't ever say that to me again. Because I can't unsee that woman. Mm -hmm. I see her every day. I see the baby every day. And in my dream, it's my child. That's how it really got personal to me. So that nightmare, I relive it all the time. 
still. Mm-hmm. Even with all the help I've gotten, it just never goes away. So, like I said a little bit ago, you never know what happens to this person when they're somewhere else, when they're at home, when they're in the car. You just don't know what you don't know. And I try, I try to find myself remembering that. I try to remember that so that when, when something happens to me that I don't like, that I'm upset about, I, I, I go from zero to 60 in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's just how I am. And, and I've changed because of the PTSD. I, I'm, I'm more apt to get angry, more, more susceptible to uh, my blood pressure jumping through the roof and, and flying off the handle. But as I'm aging, and really as my children are aging, mm-hmm. and I'm watching the things that they experience, I'm starting to realize that I really need to take some stuff in before I react. I need to really try to stay closer to that baseline and remember that what happened to me didn't happen to them, and what happened to them didn't happen to me, and I have no idea what they're going through. And vice versa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They don't have any idea what I'm going through either or how I perceive what they say or how I see what they're talking about. You know, this this instance with this kid down in Florida that was having some really mental issues. He went off to college, was like the all-American kid, goes off to college, starts having some serious mental problems, asks for help, can't get help starts acting very strange everyone just keeps letting him continue to act strange and then whenever all hell breaks loose and he finally loses his mind and kills two people and horrifically maims one of the victims by chewing his face off people are like oh my gosh why why didn't anyone stop him you know, the guy re- the guy begged for help. The guy begged the cops on the scene to kill him. Please kill me. You know, and those officers, I I want to give every one of them a hug because they're not ever going to unsee what they saw that day. And they had to beat this young kid into submission, and they're not going to forget that either. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the gig, but those things stay with you forever. And so today when you showed up here and I walked out of my room and you saw me and I was a totally different person than you were expecting to see, mm-hmm. you know, you were excited and you you were like, man, you look great. And how do you feel? And you, I'm really happy for you. And mm-hmm. then you said, how are you coping? And I said, well, some of it's tough. Whereas someone that doesn't know me, like you know me, would say, man, you really did good. You, and, and you took the easy way out. You had surgery, you know, or that kind of thing. You don't really know. You don't really know. But I was coming from a position when I saw you of this is a change with the surgery to lose weight. You, It was a transition. And 
any change like that where you're changing your physical body or the evolution of growing your mind of constantly learning your body was learning as well how to adapt and that can change your psyche in a way so that's how I put it that way well you know that I'm kind of getting off on a tangent here but if you look if you read any studies on PTSD physical studies the brain changes Mm -hmm. PTSD is that you know they call it a disorder but it's really a disease that changes someone Mm -hmm. physically which then changes them mentally it's just like tbi it's just like tbi without the blunt force trauma Mm -hmm. and your brain physically deteriorates and changes i'm deathly afraid of cte deathly afraid of it you read about these guys you see about these guys on tv these football players that kill their family and then kill themselves and then please study my brain because i took a hundred shots to the head you know i'm deathly afraid of that because i've had tbi and ptsd and i don't ever want to be that person to my family i mean i i've told my friends and family several times if i start getting like that and dementia and alzheimer's just take me out behind the woodshed because i don't want to be that guy you know of course they won't but i i i don't want to live that way i don't want them to see me that way i lost my mother to dementia and you watch them leave well before they ever die Mm -hmm. they're gone well before then and so that's what scares me the most Mm -hmm. and it scares me into realizing that you know your time is limited so don't spend that time being an asshole and it's making me realize like i said to listen more to say what's this person going through that they're acting this way even though i don't like it and i want to smack them my first instinct is to smack them what what's happening with this person that's really making them this way so i learned that through my own demise of my health problems Mm -hmm. Um, and with that became the type of i i i would call myself a leader I, i i think that i'm a leader I don't think I'm a manager because I know that I would never ask someone, for instance, I would never ask that enlisted guy to do anything that I wasn't willing to do myself. If you are, then you're not supposed to be in that position. Right. So I've always had that mindset of if I can't do it, I'm not going to have someone else do it. If we go to mow the grass and you have a degree in horticulture and you're a brand spanking new airman and I'm a three-star general, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be like, BJ, take over this task. I'll be responsible. I'll be the last line of defense, but I'm giving this to you because this is your area. This is what you do. I don't have any idea about grass and horticulture, so you take over. If you can't do that, then you can't call yourself a leader. So put that in your pocket. Take that to whatever it is, whatever job it is you're going to go to tomorrow morning and remind yourself, would I ask that guy to do something that I wouldn't do? And if you would, then you need to rethink where you're at as far as a role in leadership. Hey, I want to thank my guests for their insights. 
on leadership. I also want to thank you, the listeners. Don't forget to follow Firing Pin Leadership on social media, which includes Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Keep in mind, a portion of proceeds goes to ConcernsOfPoliceSurvivors.org. Concerns of Police Survivors provides resources to fallen officers' families and co-workers to rebuild their shattered lives. COPS offers training and assistance to law enforcement agencies nationwide on how to respond to tragic loss of a member of the law enforcement profession. Take care and God bless.